Alina, are you fake texting? It's super important. Ditwit, blubber, oddman, tweak! Anglophies. Gettle's gone? Well done, Russia. Not words you hear often from political commentators. <laughs> oh, I might as well just growl. That'd be about it. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode nine, because we looked it up this time. Episode nine of Anglophies. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And we are not joined by Kaylee this time because she is off reviewing a Scottish adaptation of the Swedish play, Let the Right One In, and she'll tell us how it all is. But we're super, super stoked to be joined by very special guest, Sean and McGuire. Did I say it right? You did! Yay! I feel like I'm on the Muppet Show now. <laughs> we are super excited. Yay! Um... Shannon has written many, many awesome books, including the Newsflesh trilogy, which um, devotees of Marco Shiro will have just seen him finish and had his heart shattered by about <laughs> 5,000 times. It was awesome. And the Toby Day series and the Encrypted series, Encrypted, 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 yes. Encrypted. Sorry. Um, and many other short stories and novellas. And she's been nominated for five Hugos. Well, four, but one of them twice this year. <laughs> <laughs> and am I correct in remembering that you are the first female author to have done that? I'm the first author to have done that. The They're... first author. Yeah, I was the first female author to appear on the ballot four times in a single year. Um, and this year I became the first author, period, to appear on the ballot five times in a single year, as well as being the first female author to set a number of times record. Nice. So that was nice. That was awesome. So, yeah, and the Hugos are at the end of August? End of August. Lone Star Con. Yep, in San Antonio, which uh, is a little saddening because I get test anxiety from awards. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter that there is nothing I can do because people will vote as people will vote. And that's what I want. I want people to vote for what they feel should win. Um, but it, it doesn't matter that I can't study harder and, and thus win now test anxiety. So I start throwing up about three weeks before the Hugos and just continue <laughs> until after the ceremony. Um, oh. and it sounds funny, but it's actually kind it of horrible. Sound. Oh God. <laughs> and, and so I'm going to the land of giant cheap steaks, which is, is one of my personal paradises. Like, would you like an entire cow on your plate? Here you are. <laughs> I'm going to the land of, of endless cheap steak that is fantastic, and I know that any steak I eat is coming right back up for a repeat appearance, and that, that kind of makes it less appealing, because uh, steak is not a fun material to vomit. Mm -hmm. um, so, I'm like, damn it, why did this have to happen when the con is in Texas? It's not fair. Um, before we get into the topic, Kaylee will murder us if we don't say that those who follow Kaylee and I on Twitter and on Tumblr know that we've become huge fans of the NBC show Hannibal and it got renewed for a second season. So thank you, NBC. And there will be an Anglophies episode on Hannibal probably in the fall. Awesome. So you know, I, 
I saw a thing on Tumblr the other day that I think explains why Hannibal got renewed. Um, because it, it ran down all of the things that we as fans have sent to networks when our shows were in danger of cancellation. <laughs> you know, they, they sent Subway sandwiches when it was Chuck and, and something. When Veronica Mars got canceled, we sent Mars bars. And it's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently people had been sending like business cards and dinner invite invitations to NBC. <laughs> but it it is a legitimate fear of... So if we actually canceled the show, what, what what would they send? Yeah, would there be human body parts in our mail? Because I just, I don't feel that that is a good thing. Let's keep it on the air. Right. Yes. And now we'll never know. Oh, I think we're going to go through this fight every season. Yeah. <laughs> right up until you stop loving the show. Mm-hmm. You know, having not watched the show... I would predict that if cancellation was, you know, on kind of being discussed, I predict elk or moose. That'd be good. Or stag or something else, because I've seen a stag motif po- yeah, pop the, up in Tumblr posts and Twitter posts. Dire Raven, Raven stag, stag. Yes. Um, TM Cleolinda. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen a couple of, of folks getting upset that they're apparently making Hannibal into a villain. And I, I'm kind of sitting there going... <laughs> I saw Silence of the Lambs when I was 12. Yeah. This is I, inevitable. <laughs> yeah. the, I know who Hannibal sinks. is. <laughs> yeah. The boat sinks, Hannibal eats people. It, there's not much room here. Yeah. Yeah, that's... There's there's sort of an east-west divide among the, the fandom. Those of us who are like, we know what Hannibal... We knew what we were getting into at the beginning. And those who are like, but, but can't can't we make him into a whoopee? Can't we put him into the leather pants? No. No. You can have him in a mask in a cage. Yeah. Yeah. uh, That's where you're winding up is with Hello Clarice. Now, how we get there is going to be fascinating. Yeah. But there's not much deviation space. I'm very sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, Another follow-up news from a previous episode, very briefly, is, and we've, I've mentioned this on Twitter on the Anglophies account, is that Fables, the comic book series, is possibly now getting a film. Yay! So, after not becoming a TV show, it now might go to the big screen. Yay! <laughs> and now I think we can dive straight into why <laughs> women in speculative fiction are so great and yet still so discriminated against. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, That was kind of a strong statement, but in looking up some stuff for this episode, I I, I noticed this um, pattern of behavior that started a long time ago, and and the fact that it's still continuing now is just sad. And that is, if you think about it, if you study uh, English literature, and and you study George Eliot, who was a woman and wrote under a man's name because... Men wrote all the books back then, and, you know, the Bronte sisters all had male pseudonyms. And that was 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. C.J. Cherry won her first Hugo, I just looked it up, in um, 72, 1972. And her Wikipedia entry, the second paragraph, literally talks about how she's C.J. because her publisher said, well, you know, it's usually men, so let's hide the fact that you're a woman. They even added an H onto her last name because Cherry by itself is, oh, it's too much like a romance author. And 20 years later, Joanne Rowling is JK because, well, boys aren't going to buy this book if they know it's by a Joanne. Yeah. Apparently, we haven't come that far. Unfortunately, 
not as far as we ought to be. Um, there are a huge number of biases that play even when we don't know that they're playing. Um, I, I'm Mira Grant, and I insisted on having a female pseudonym for that series, but I'm Mira Grant in part because we knew that a lot of readers, of, of male readers who read zombie thrillers and who would be the target audience for those books would not pick up something that was written by an urban fantasy author because urban fantasy is a girly genre. And that was a legitimate thing that had to be considered if we wanted to get those books out and to the audience that we wanted them to have. Mm-hmm. So that's why the pseudonym, that's interesting. There are a lot of reasons, but it's primarily, I, I explain this constantly. I, I don't understand how it's still a mystery. There's even an entry in my website FAQ about why are you Mira Grant. But it was it was largely marketing. Um, it's still me. It's always been an open pseudonym. But people who go, oh, urban fantasy, that's a girly subgenre. And there are a lot of people who do that. Um they would have just dismissed Feed, despite the fact that it was from a different publisher, it had a very different cover, the plot synopsis. Honestly, some folks would not even have picked it up to look at the back cover if they had known it was by an urban fantasist. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how urban fantasy, I mean, this hasn't always been the case. So how, when do we think it began being viewed as a female-dominated subgenre? Uh, when mostly women were writing it? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> apart from that... There is a lot of crossover between urban fantasy and paranormal romance. And those are actually two different genres. They originated in two different places. Paranormal romance comes to us out of the romance genre, where time travel romances and vampire romances and and all of these things are a time-honored tradition. Like, Mm -hmm. there is a lot of speculative fiction that is published under the romance banner. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for them, what matters is the romance. That's what has to come first because that's what you're writing. You're writing a romance that happens to have insert thing X here. Um, Urban fantasy largely rose out of the scribblies, I, I think. There are a lot of possible different different uh, origins for urban fantasy. Really, I think urban fantasy originated with fairy tales. Those are the oldest urban fantasies in Mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. When they were being written, they were urban fantasy. You knew people who lived on the edge of great big woods and who had to walk through possibly wolf-infested forests to get to their grandmother. Those were genuine urban fantasy cautionary tales that that just kind of aged out. Mm -hmm. The Scribblies in the 80s, you had Emma Bull, you had Charles DeLint, you had Pamela Dean, you had all these folks that are basically doing fantasy in a modern setting. And I'd say that was about 50-50 men and women. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but except for Charles DeLint and Neil Gaiman, most of the guys stopped doing that for a while, I think, because they were more welcome in science fiction. You know, you don't, as a man, you don't get told, oh, boys don't write sci-fi. You don't get told, oh, boys don't write horror. Girls, unfortunately, women get both of those statements. I've received both of those statements. Mm-hmm. So they focused on urban fantasy, which was a genre that was open to them where they were allowed to play. Romance has a huge readership. Uh, the, the readership of romance, for all that most of the serious science fiction fans I know will turn up their nose and scoff at it, could eat us. Yeah. <laughs> like, the romance readers of the world could just stand up and be like, yeah, we are taking over Worldcon now, and we already outnumber you three to one in just a single year. And 
there's nothing you could do. They, they have those numbers. So when the paranormal romances started getting rebranded as urban fantasy and the romance readers started discovering the urban fantasy authors that existed, those authors were encouraged to put more romantic elements and more sexual elements in their books. And you kind of get where we are now, where the two genres are a little easier to confuse than I necessarily like. Uh-huh. Uh, I enjoy both paranormal romance and urban fantasy, but I like knowing which I'm picking up when I pick it up. Mm-hmm. So if I'm reading a, a really great urban fantasy and it's rocking along and then suddenly kawam, it's a 10 page sex scene. I, I'm a little disoriented. I'm like, what, why, why is this here? <laughs> I didn't, if I wanted to read porn, I'd go online and read fanfic, go away. Uh, so I kind of wish we could have like a plot to porn pie chart on the back of all urban fantasies and paranormal romances. I would buy all parts of the pie. I would just be picking up what I understood. But so urban fantasy from that conflation with paranormal romance got a very girly reputation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it is extremely telling in some ways that while I love him as an individual, he's a very sweet man. He's ex- we share proofreaders most people, if they are not averred urban fantasy fans, when asked to name an urban fantasy author that has literary merit, because there is this lasting idea that anything girly, uh, you can't see me making air quotes every time I say that, but I do, uh, <laughs> that anything girly has no literary merit. Mm-hmm. If, if you're writing about women doing woman things, you have given up your claim to literary merit. So you say to most people, well, what urban fantasy does have literary merit? Can urban fantasy have literary merit? They'll be like, oh, yeah, read Jim Butcher. Yeah, right. He's doing good work, but he's not doing work that is so far above the rest of the genre, the rest of the fantastic things that are happening in the genre, that he should be our only poster child. But he's a man. Right. He's not writing girly stories. He's writing manly stories. And, you know, confirmation bias comes to the party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was telling Alina before when we were sort of pre-chatting that I had heard a guy on another podcast who was talking about how he liked to troll the paranormal romance sections of bookstores and also the urban fantasy. And when he'd see people generally women picking up a paranormal romance or an urban fantasy book he would jump at them and go no 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 you don't want to read that if you want to read the good stuff you need to read Eddings you need to read Jordan you need to read Tolkien and just basically would list off the white male mm-hmm. science fiction fantasy canon yeah you and need that's to, what you need white to read and, oh, oh. I'm, I'm right there with you in your incoherent animal noises. <laughs> it's, it is infuriating. It's infuriating as an author. Um, I have been surprisingly lucky in some ways. Uh-huh. You know, we, we joke about I probably sold my soul at the crossroads because of the ways in which I have been surprisingly lucky. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm immune from getting the urban fantasy is it's girly it's worthless it has no literary merit nothing you do can ever have literary merit uh the year i won the campbell award which that that sounds like the king of all humble brags you know the year i won the campbell but this is actually relevant um the year i won the campbell someone actually said to my publisher that i had no that 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 urban fantasy hack doesn't stand a chance 
Because if I'm writing urban fantasy, I can't have any chance at winning a literary award because, again, I have no literary merit. Mm-hmm. And this person felt that they were totally justified in saying that because it just made sense. You know, it's sad considering that speculative fiction as a whole is often looked down on. That Then you have layers of discrimination within the genre itself as well. Everybody wants to have someone beneath them. Yeah. That's, it's, it's primate nature. Mm-hmm. We are a species that enjoys status. So if I say unto a science fiction author, science fiction authors are the nerds of the literary world, you're never going to sit at the cool kids club, that science fiction author is likely just from, from pure instinct to go, okay, well, who sits at a worse table than I do? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's not malicious. Uh, it may be sometimes, but the way that I keep from just running through life in a pure incandescent rage all the time is that I assume a lack of malice whenever possible. Mm-hmm. You're not doing this to be mean. You're doing this because you didn't think about it. You're doing this because you don't know any better. I'm going to give you as much rope as I possibly can. Before I go, no, actually, you're just a dick. Because, again, otherwise angry all the time. And uh, that is exhausting. I don't, I don't like being mad. It makes me tired. So is this a point at which we talk about um, the Science Fiction Writers of America bulletin column? Yay! The <laughs> bulletin column. <sighs> oh, okay, do you guys have a summation for this? Oh, do you God. want me to <laughs> um, who, can, who can articulate best without resorting to incoherent animal noises? Okay. <laughs> I'm trying not to talk all the talking on your podcast. But oh, I, I'm sure the listeners of this episode are, yeah. here to, are, are here to listen to you talk all the time. After all, they, they can hear us any other episode. So <laughs> please do. <laughs> I still try to be polite. So... Essentially, we have a column that has been running in the CIFA Bulletin for quite some time, which is the Resnick-Malberg Dialogues, um, and it is two older white gentlemen talking about what's going on in the science fiction world. Um, The only reason that their age matters in this discussion is that it has been used as a defense of the situation, that that they're older, that they learned the rules at a different time. They did a column in the previous issue about lady writers and lady editors, uh, which included some statements about the appearance of those lady writers and lady editors that were not relevant. Uh, they, They did not have any reason to be in that post, nor did the phrase lady really need to be in that post. People went, grumble, grumble, I don't like this. Uh, Resnick and Malberg became aware that people had gone, grumble, grumble, I don't like this. And rather than either, A, using their position in the official trade bulletin of the Science Fiction Writers of America to apologize, or B, saying, we don't want to apologize, we don't feel we did anything wrong, but we're just going to let the subject die, They decided to go on the offensive against their critics, uh, stating that anyone who did not want 
again, the official trade bulletin of the Science Fiction Writers of America uh, used to talk about the appearance of female science fiction authors and editors and other such irrelevancies were censoring them. We were committing censorship. Uh, we were the thought police. Uh, I do not have my copy of the bulletin open in front of me, although I, I could go get it. Uh, if you needed me to, there was a line in there about this is what leads us to the abattoirs mm -hmm. and about how allowing this form of, of censorship um, is what quashes free speech and brings on, you know, the political correctness apocalypse. Uh, honestly, when I first read it, because I, I tend to be a slow thinker about things that are actually going to make me angry because uh, I want to be sure that I'm not reacting irrationally. Mm -hmm. um, because I do get very, very angry, and I'm like, I'm going to sit and think before I get furious. Uh, the first thing that I, that I was upset about was that these two gentlemen who get paid to write in my official trade bulletin don't know what the hell censorship means. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I, I thought was just very a sad statement on our educational system, really. Uh, people got more upset. Uh, actually, everyone became upset. Uh, including me, um, and uh, Sifwa has been made aware of this upsetness. Some people have chosen not to renew their memberships. Others have stated that they will never join Sifwa. Uh, the editor of the bulletin has been fired, and a task force has been convened to prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. Uh, lots of good ranting has been done. Lots of people have gotten very angry. Uh, lots of men's rights activists have come out of the woodwork to tell us that we are being <laughs> irrational females. Uh, yeah. We have then gotten angry at the men's rights activists, which is kind of fun in a horrible way. And uh, lots of swearing has been done. I, I think that I, I don't actually know what the PG level of this podcast is. Uh, we uh, swear all the fucking time. Oh, good. I think I, I used the word fuck more times in my uh, in my blog post about this situation uh, than I had in the eight blog posts previous. <laughs> Which, even for me, is kind of like, wow, that's a lot of fuck. Mm. I'm just going to quote uh, a little bit from the end of this, because I'm looking at the scan right now. Okay. And this is from the response where they talk, where they don't know what censorship mean, means. Uh if they get away with censoring that, can you imagine what comes next? I'm pretty sure Joe Stalin could imagine it. <laughs> oh, you know, are you on nickname basis with Stalin? <laughs> it's just if, like seriously, are you are you hanging out with Stalin? Is he still alive? Can can I come over? I own I own lots of knives, lots of knives. Uh, oh God. So yeah, there are there are so many things wrong with that discussion. Uh, that it is actually difficult to find a place to start mm -hmm. yeah. uh, with the screaming fury. Um, there, there's the whole doesn't know what censorship means, but, but that's very common, I have found, in people that are being called on problematic dialogue. Mm -hmm. It is exceedingly common that I say unto you, that thing which you have said, it is not appropriate, it has upset me, it has hurt my feelings, please don't say that around me. And, uh, and that the proverbial, the hypothetical you in this conversation responds with, well, you're not, you can't censor me. That, 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 that's not what censorship means. Am it, I the government? 
I think it's it's somewhat related to well things like men's rights can you hear the air quotes activists mm-hmm. always make me want to say loss of privilege is not the same thing as discrimination mm-hmm. as lack of equality right so that and it's the same thing you know you don't censorship is when the government frees you to say it doesn't mean you get to say whatever you want consequence free yeah i was in elementary school if i said fuck you to my teacher i got in trouble that wasn't censorship i could go home and say fuck all i wanted except that then my mother would get me in trouble because <laughs> well i was in school it was the rules of the place in which i was i spend a lot of time at disney parks the back of your ticket says flat out foul language is not allowed at Disney parks. This is a family location. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen people get evicted from parks. I have seen people refuse to stop swearing and be asked by Disney security to leave. Were, were they being censored? No, they're not going to prison. They agreed to that language restriction when they bought their ticket, even if they didn't bother to read what they were buying. Okay. It's a it's a way to shut down conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my, did you hear about the campaign that was going on for the past couple of weeks to get Facebook to actually start enforcing their standards against hate speech against women? I did. My roommate was one of the people who organized that whole thing. Tell your roommate thank you for me. I will do that. Um, she also listens to this podcast, so you can thank think. you. <laughs> awesome. And, um, of course, the men's rights activists are coming after her and everybody who participated in that. Um, There's actually a White House petition to figure out if this was actually censorship because government funding something of which there is none. Um, Last we checked, it had four signatures. It's adorable. Aww. Well, remember, though, what actually gets funded by the government doesn't matter once the men's rights activists come to the party. Exactly. Um, You know, see also all of the efforts to defund and get rid of Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't matter. I'd like to mention that uh, we'll link in the show notes not only... um, a page which has scans of the articles, but also Jim Hines' compilation of blog posts and discussions. Um, Sean, and you're on there. You're the latest edition. Oh, yeah, He added me. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> he added you. A couple of days ago, he added you. So uh, we'll have exhaustive links. Um, so for those who want to wade into this quagmire <laughs> and find out why, what what's egregiously offensive in the world today (laughs) yeah it's it is a beautiful example of flaming inequality Uh, we saw something very similar a couple months ago when a movement was made to when wikipedia started quietly moving all of the female authors all the people they could identify as female onto a female authors page So you no longer appeared on the main author's page. If somebody went looking for you on Wikipedia, which people increasingly are coming to feel is a reliable resource, even though, Mm. spoiler alert, it's not. Yeah. Um, If people came looking for you, or even just were like, 
I want someone to read. I'm going to ask Wikipedia. I'm going to play Wikipedia roulette. They would only find male authors on that page. And one of the proposals that was made was that if you, if you insist on doing this segregation, if you have to put the female authors on a female author's page, uh, then how about we also have a male author's page? Mm-hmm. To which the response was basically, no, we don't need that. Male is the default. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of where I think some of this misplaced, oh, but it was completely appropriate for me to call you a lady author. It was completely appropriate for me to call the two of you lady podcasters. Um, language comes from. Because we really are in a world where we are told from birth. Male is the norm. It is, mm-hmm. it is the default. It is the natural state of being. It is what everything should be. And female is the aberration. Uh, when, I was, when I was posting about this, this article, I said, you know, some folks do feel that, there is, that this is an overreaction to the phrase lady author, lady editor. Uh, and in a way, it is. To that phrase in isolation, I call myself a girl and a lady and a female and a chick and all sorts of things, depending on the context. Mm-hmm. So getting this angry over the phrase lady author does seem like an overreaction. It seems like we're just unpacking a huge amount of, oh my God, rage out of these two words. But that's that's what happens when the background radiation of your entire life is this combination of, of men are normal, human, wonderful, admirable, talented, you should aspire to be men, and bitches be crazy. Yep. It reminds me of... Um... A blog post I was reading, kind of, I think it might have been actually one of uh, a responses to the this situation. Uh, it was a defense of, uh, you know, the use of all in of specifying that a woman is a woman in a certain profession, but also, well, if you call somebody beautiful, how can it be sexist? <laughs> and that a blog author, that post author who's male, used a specific example. Well, if I say, if I uh, am introducing a person or talking about a person, I say, this is an extremely beautiful uh, woman and she's an award-winning, you know, an award-winning author, blah, blah, blah. And why is that offensive? I'm like, because her being beautiful, her being an object for your aesthetic pleasure is your main point, whereas her intellectual achievements are parenthetical. They're grammatically parenthetical. You put it in parentheses mm-hmm. or in commas, and you don't yeah. see a problem with that? I know a huge number of male science fiction authors that are absolutely wonderful people who have no place appearing in a pinup calendar. They, they are not conventionally, necessarily attractive gentlemen. I don't feel that this is relevant, and neither does anyone else, apparently, because no one brings it up when they're discussing their work. And I don't know of any of those men who have received emails saying, your work is less valuable because you are not pretty. Mm-hmm. I am a larger woman. I, I am heavier than I want to be right now because I've been having some medical issues that meant I couldn't exercise, and I'm, I'm one of those people that gains weight from air if I'm not exercising. And the mere fact that I feel the need to say that to you rather than just going, I'm fat, it's awesome, all my clothes fit, uh, <laughs> says something about, about our culture again. Mm-hmm. But I have received email, and not just one person, I have received email from multiple sources telling me that my work is less valuable because I'm a fatty, that they used to like my work and then they saw my picture um, that they would fuck me because in their heads they would be fucking my mind. 
Oh, thanks. That, yeah, thanks. Um, that I I talk about not being willing to have my protagonists be raped in my fiction because no one's going to ever want to rape me, and I don't want them to get something I'm not getting. What? These are actual emails I have received, and none of them is a single isolated event. You know, we've backtracked them. We've, we've done the police reporting for the people that have seemed like they might actually get violent. Uh, and they have not, for the most part, come from the same source. So my appearance is directly, negatively impacting my work for some people. Um, I, I was last year, I was the first person to ever have a single artist folk CD nominated for the Hugos for my CD, Wicked Girls. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the, the title track is this extreme, it's a female empowerment ballad almost. It's about, you know, don't be marginalized, stand up and be yourself. And I wrote it specifically to sing with my best friend. It's a, it's a duet. I wanted to sing it with her. It was always meant to be sung with her. I ran into an article not that long ago where someone was like, I used to really love this song. I thought it was amazing. And then I found a video of Seanan and Vixie singing it. And I was watching the video and thinking, gosh, Seanan, it's amazing that she's friends with this Vixie girl because Seanan's this pretty little redhead and Vixie is this extremely, you know, over-enthusiastic fat Muppet. And then I realized, oh my God, the fat Muppet is Seanan. And this song is just terrible now. It's a horrible, there's, there's no value. It was, it was fantastic. That's amazing. So, that, that is speechless, rendering me speechless amazing. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. That's why having our appearance brought into a conversation is offensive. Now, where are all the all the people saying George Martin? I will. How dare you write about sex when you are not a hot guy? Yeah, right. That, where is that, all those people? That doesn't happen when I do see objectification of male authors, and it does happen. You know, I I see lots of folks posting pictures of Neil Gaiman or China Mieville and going, "Ooh, yum!" But they never say, "I started buying his books because he was hot." And they're not balanced out by the people posting pictures of George R. R. Martin and other folks going, oh, my God, ew. <laughs> you know, you do that, you are immediately stomped down by a legion of that person's fans, as it should be. <laughs> but it's a righteous stomping because it's mostly men doing the stomping. Whereas when it's girls, we're being hysterical again. <sighs> now we're all angry. <laughs> now we're all, this is why no. we're all so pissed off all the time. This uh, is, it's exhausting. But, but I do have a segue into a different a different kind of misogyny. <laughs> this Yay. is also a thing that was well, it was it's not it's so much it's more of um it's more of a feel good story because it's making fun of uh, misogyny in literature. This was uh, Maureen Johnson's call for gender flipped covers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so what <laughs> best selling author Maureen Johnson she tweeted uh, a basically a that she gets a lot of emails from male fans going, well, why, I wish your books didn't have such girly covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those authors and people in publishing, they know a little bit more about who, who has input on a cover, very often not the author, you know, and how that works. But what came out of that was a challenge. She said, let's take books and, and give them a new cover 
uh, on this. Um, what if their author was the opposite gender? Right. Uh, there's a HuffPost article that has a compilation um, of them. There's a slideshow. They're great. They're, uh, and this one both ways. Some people took books written by men and what cover would they have gotten had it been a female author. Some people did the opposite. Some of these are uh, funny. A lot of them are very high quality and you could see that, oh, yes, yeah. that would be the book. So we'll link that because it's worth a look. But it's also, it's, it's one of those things we probably don't think about as, as much, but it is just another, you know, symptom. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about it, it constantly. I honestly do feel that part of the success of the Toby series has been the fact that I essentially get male urban fantasy covers. Mm-hmm. You know, take a look at the Toby Day books. She is presented in exactly the same kind of positioning, posing, and situations that you get from the dudes, mm-hmm. um, which because Daw is amazing, and and they actually like listened to me. Um, I had been braced for a half naked blonde with a sword, because uh, that's that's what you have to do. The Japanese would then imitate <laughs> hilariously with a teddy bear. Yes, yes, he would, um, and it's it's also kind of funny because I've had people get righteously angry on my behalf over the discount Armageddon cover. I petitioned for that cover so hard. <laughs> I found the artist. The the original artist that we were going to try and get for that series was not available. And so I literally emailed, I think, every piece of artwork Ali Fell had ever, had ever posted online to my editor going, this is the guy. This is him. I want him. And so the DA cover is the single cover that I had had the most input on to that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're so conditioned now that g- girls will get these inappropriate covers that people looked at it and went, oh, that can't be right. <laughs> As an author, uh, when it comes to covers, do you feel that the rise of ebooks is um, making that slightly less of a problem because, you know, nobody can see what the cover is when you're reading on a Kindle? Yes. Well, okay. As, as, a, as a traditionally published author, I feel that the rise of ebooks has made it a little easier for people to hide the cover of what they're reading, uh, which makes me a little sad because I've always loved seeing what the people around me on the train were reading. Like, it's how I've sometimes found new books to read. I totally um, shamelessly read over people's shoulders. I do too. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and now that I do that, now that I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be reading the historical erotica right now. <laughs> Yeah, no, read it and be proud. Um, and, and that's good. I do kind of feel, though, that that is, in a weird way, in that whole two steps forward, one step back way, it's contributing to what I see as slut-shaming of urban fantasy covers. Mm-hmm. Because now you can read your urban fantasy without ever having to show anyone that cover. And so perfectly reasonable covers get, get much more, oh, I would never be seen in public reading that. You know, I had a bunch of guys email me when Discount Armageddon came out and go, I, I would never have read this if it weren't for the ebook. I just, I would have been ashamed to see it in public. And I'm like, well, why? Is it because the half-naked girl? No, because it's so pink. <laughs> like, dude, seriously? Pink was the masculine color up until like a hundred years ago. Less, I think, yeah. Right. I think 80 probably years, is, is it was still masculine. But, you know, if your ego is so fragile, it can handle people judging the cover of the book you're reading. Something's yeah, very wrong with you. But 
Oh, I'd like to make a, a, a small point about ebooks and covers because this is something that happened to me recently. Um, I can't remember if it was Kindle or Kobo. I think it was Kobo, but they changed the cover of of one of my ebooks. Uh, I saw I was in my in the Kobo library and suddenly noticed that a book had a completely different color. And I have to say, as a reader, I really dislike that. I think it was just another tangible reminder that the originating store still has like control over the files. Mm-hmm. That is that is honestly part of why I can't bring myself to switch to ebooks. Um, you know, Diane Duane is doing the new Millennium edition of her Young Wizards books. Oh my God! Yes, sorry, I, which, we were going to talk which about is her. Great. Right, because it lets people for whom otherwise the technology in the first couple would be hugely isolating discover this amazing series. Oh my god, yes. So important. At the same time, those books were so important to me when I was in middle school. I love and you. I, I don't want to read about Nita having an iPod, okay? Nita <laughs> does not have an iPod. Nita is from before the iPod era. And I have long since come internally to terms with with the tech dichotomies here. So on the one hand, I'm like, yay, we can make Young Wizards accessible to new readers again, and that's great for Diane's career, which I, every author I love, I want them to have like the best career so that they'll publish books forever that I get to read and enjoy, because um, I'm very selfish that way. Um, and so that's like, it's great for Diane's career, that's wonderful, and it's great for all these new readers that get to read th- the books and finally love them and get the fuck away from my copies. <laughs> I will end you. You know, and, and that's the thing. It's like, I don't want an auto-update coming through. No. Because George, you know, George Lucas has decided to revise something again. Yeah. So... Mm. I will point uh, listeners of the podcast back towards, I think, one of the very early episodes, maybe episode two or three, where I mentioned Caliber, the ebook management program. And it does have add ons, which do allow you to um, make copies of your ebook files that will no longer be <laughs> accessible to the Amazon or Kobo stores. Um, I, I am very anti DRM. I think when you purchase something, it's yours. I'm perfectly willing to pay the legal money for it. I just think it's mine afterwards. But uh, ha- happily right now, technologies there are technologies out there that do allow um, the consumers some, uh, some protection and some control. Yeah. And then I'm full, fully support that. I, I don't feel like DRM does anything but piss people off. As an author, if I had the authority, I would be like, no, we're not putting DRM on anything I do. I don't have that authority yet. Uh, it is a fervent dream that someday I'll have it, but it's an even more fervent dream that before I can get to that point, the publishers will follow Tor's lead and realize that DRM is not doing us any favors. Mm. Even iTunes doesn't DRM protect their MP3s. Hasn't for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even they realize that. But uh, since you brought up Dan Dwayne, whom, oh my God, her Young Wizards, it was one of the most amazing books of my youth. I own them actually. I own them in Russian you know, book copies. I own them in English book copies, and then I own the ebooks. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how much I, I own three different oh, yeah. copies, at least of the books. They're amazing. Um, since she was brought up, I'd like to mention a, a a story that she posted. Not a fiction story. This is something that happened to her. She mentioned this on Tumblr, uh, and we. She was talking about, you know. The, the fake geek girl phenomenon it's kind of under that mm. uh, she was accused once by a man of um, 
you know, somebody told you the ending of that video game, women don't play it, don't even pretend. She was, in fact, the author of the video game. She Uh wrote the story for it. (laughs) And she had on hand, she just happened to come from a meeting with the company, so she had papers, you know, signed. Obviously, the guy never looked at the credits, huh? Yep. So she showed him, and she said it was the one time she actually saw somebody literally slink away in shame. The the whole fake geek girl phenomenon is really another example of both internalized misogyny and slut shaming. Mm -hmm. Because I have seen women who are not as conventionally attractive join in on the assumption that a woman who is overly conventionally attractive must be a fake geek girl. That that she can't be there for the right reasons. Oh, let's face it. Internalized misogyny is a thing. You know, groups internalize discrimination against themselves. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I was the only girl in a couple of my gaming groups. And I viewed new girls trying to come into the group like lions encroaching on my territory. Mm -hmm. You know, this was the area with my boys. And I didn't want to share them. And that was a form of misogyny. I had been taught that the girl, that being a girl among a group of men was such an aberration that there was only room for one, that the Smurfette principle lived, worked in real life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we do that to ourselves. We allow it to be done to us and we participate in the doing of it. Mm-hmm. It happens with uh, ethnic and racial groups as well as, you know, having been taken out of Russia, I see just how much anti-Semitism me as a kid and my family have assimilated being in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a little bit scary when, you, when you're taken out of the context, when your eyes are open to it. Yeah. And that's, I think, why it is important that, that we keep having these conversations, even when they're uncomfortable, even when they force us to stop and go, oh, maybe an attitude I had was misogynistic or was racist or, or was inappropriate, or maybe it still is and I still have work to do. Because as long as you're allowed to let it stay unconscious, you're not going to fix it. It's just part of how the world works. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then I'll have to set everything on fire. <laughs> Which, and- while that could be fun, is not ideal. No. It would be a lot of fun, though. It would be so much fun. Oh, the burning! <laughs> the burning! <laughs> Boom. <gasps> that is you're such a hypocrite in the very beginning you told me not to set the podcast on fire and now you're the pyromaniac turns out I'm you just wanted to do it yourself everything on fire if you set the podcast on fire then you don't have a podcast anymore and you will be sad if we set the biosphere on fire <laughs> we'll have time to giggle maniacally at the fact that everything is burning everything is burning and then we'll be burning too and giggling will go far down our, our list of priorities um, and, and then we'll will be dead so it's really you won't care exactly it's less don't burn your podcast and more don't burn things you're not finished using she has an excellent point that's true it it just came out this last week that the u.s government has apparently um been monitoring everyone's cell and phones and uh, all of my friends are very upset about this i am less upset because i have actually been assuming that the u.s government was monitoring my email and phones since about the fifth time I called the CDC to, to ask how I could design the perfect bioweapon. Um, <laughs> so I, I will actually just stop in the middle of conversations to add footnotes for the NSA guys that I figure are listening in. Yeah. Oh, I say hi to them all the time. 
Yeah, exactly. It's like it doesn't make it any better that they're doing this. And P.S. NSA guys, you, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Shame. But it it makes me, you know, it's oh, this isn't news. It's just confirmation. Hello, NSA. Let's talk about the plague. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. My husband and I have these fights. My husband's an American, uh, and. I, we tend to come to any political fight from a point of view where he is very libertarian and very, you know, pro-small government. And I have um, a pragmatic Russian view of the world as in this is how the world works. And oh, honey, you're so naive. <laughs> <laughs> so we have have fights, uh, political fights, which end with him slamming the car door and going, why are you so Russian? <laughs> Well, I don't know. <laughs> when you married me, you were under the impression that was a plus. <laughs> this is buyer's remorse, honey. Aww. Aww. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for the NSA, guys. That's great. Uh, unfortunately, the Canadian government does not seem to be spying on me. It would if my oh. prime minister had anything to say with it. But, <laughs> um, but Raiden, you can use that advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just say howdy. I say howdy to them all the time, and sometimes I will clarify that things are jokes. Yeah. Also, as a lawyer, maybe you can uh, explain the the right to assembly to them while you do this, an association, whatever other rights you guys have. (laughs) I, I do a lot of, by the way, if I were actually going to destroy the world, these are the purchases you would have already seen. Since you haven't seen them, please don't arrest me. Uh, it, it's worked so far. I think I'm just their equivalent of Comedy Central. <laughs> like, they they can't get too upset because then I'd stop talking. Yeah. Yeah. And, hey, let's face it. You're white. White people don't blow shit up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yes, yes, they do. Damn. <laughs> I, it's, it is... It is upsetting, um, honestly, to, to live in a largely white part of America and to work in a largely white office um, lar- and watch what happens every time someone does blow shit up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I legitimately at this point, every time something explodes, find myself hoping that it will be a white dude that, that did it. Like, I don't want stuff to be exploding. I find it upsetting. But if stuff explodes, I, I'll literally just sit there going, oh, God, please let it have been a white dude. Please let it have been a white dude. Because none of my white friends are going to have to worry about being attacked if they go outside after one white person blows something up. Yeah. A uh, kind That's... of re- related ra- racist controversy we've had in Canada recently is um, our... No, we, we do have um, a, a right political, politically right government in power right now. Mm-hmm. And our Minister of Immigration had put together these uh, Guide to New Canadians... And it was basically, you know, let's fill this up with stereotypes. So, you know, when you come to Canada, you know, everybody's equal. Uh, you, you can't physically abuse your spouses and, th- you know, things like that. Like things you assume, oh, those, I don't know, quote unquote savages do, like the, all those mm-hmm. racist assumptions. And there's an excellent article in newspaper recently pointing that, you, you know, like basically you, 
you make these assumptions treating the, instead of treating people like people. Right. And you say, well, these are the laws they're going to break. Actually, you know what is the most common law an Im- a new immigrant to Canada breaks? Traffic laws. Because everybody knows how to drive, but like there's slight differences in driving cultures. Mm-hmm. Those are actually the most break by an immigrant law is not stopping at stop signs. The rolling stop. That's what the immigrants. And by the way, have you checked statistic on spousal abuse? Transcends race and class. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's like the assumption every time someone gets raped, every time someone gets raped, oh, was it a big black guy? Uh, no, actually, statistically speaking, it was someone of your race, someone that you knew, um, quite possibly someone that you never thought would do that until they did. Right. Stranger rape and cross-racial rape are the rarest forms of rape. But that does not kill these horrible, incredibly racist, incredibly negative assumptions. And they get those do get people killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when they first released the the pictures of the Boston bombing suspects, mm-hmm. we all looked at them uh, and went, well, Jesus, fuck, they look like every other dude bro at Boston University and Boston College. And, well, they're not quite douchebaggy enough to look like Harvard students, but close. I actually got into a fight with someone very close and dear to me that I shall not name because they were expounding on how those those fucking Arabics blew up Boston. I'm like, Mom, no. they're, uh, they, they, they're from Chechnya. It's in the Caucasus Mountains. They're, they're, they're Caucasian, they're actually. Literally, literally. <laughs> Literally. But yeah, a personal they, anecdote. When I first moved to Canada at age of 13, I didn't know that Caucasian in North America means European descent. Uh-huh. Because I'm from Russia. Caucasian means Georgia, Azerbaijan, yeah. Chechnya, all that. So when all of my friends were talking about Caucasians, and I was like, you know, I wouldn't have imagined you guys really paid that much attention to the region here. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> Why is why are the Caucasus Mountains so important to Canadians? What's going on? Okay, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was a very very long time till I realized my mistake. Oh, a, a long but but hysterical time. Yeah, so really. I'll roll with that. Aw, oh, I want to pull us off to maybe slightly less depressing topics. Yeah, it's the most depressing <laughs> podcast ever. Um, but uh, things you know, things we haven't discussed, but maybe uh, giving names and books. Just uh, here's a reading list for you if you do want to support female authors in fiction, in speculative fiction. I, I want to point out that it, during our very first episode, Raiden, when we talked about uh, the Russian um, fantasy series that's being published in English right now, The Labyrinths of Echo, uh, published under a male name because it's actually being published under the name of the protagonist, but written by a woman. So there's a, there's a Russian female author who's a uh, fantasy author who's Making a name for herself in uh, North America now. Elena is absolutely determined to make everyone read this oh. series. <laughs> What's it about? Um, I don't know whether to classify it as fantasy or urban fantasy in that um, it takes a guy from modern day Russia and he he travels to a different universe, which isn't really like it's it's not quite exactly like our uh, technologically wise, but it's also not medieval. 
Mm-hmm. So I would say it's urban fantasy, and there there's somewhat detective novels in that he now works for basically the the secret police. Except there's magic, and Yay! they get to hunt down you know renegade magi and uh, mages and things like that. So that's oh, very cool. What's the it's urban the... fantasy? It's detective. It's called The Labyrinth of Echo, and the first book is called The Stranger. Okay, great. I know the second one was out. I think maybe the third one. Um, it's actually, they're not novels. They are more like short story compilations. The first one has the most. Okay. You open it and there's like six or seven stories. But actually the subsequent ones will have... So they're fix-up novels. Yeah. They're, they're, they're from short stories to novella length. Um, mm-hmm. Each one is basically a kind of mystery he's solving. Right. Um, but really the mysteries to me were always secondary to just the world building. How badly I wanted that world to be real. How funny it was. Humor is so hard to translate. And we had mm-hmm. a big discussion during the first episode where Raiden and Kaylee did try to read it. And um, I I've, I've did sample just because I wanted to see the quality of translation. I wanted to force my husband to read it. I wanted to force my best friend to read it. I was just, now I can finally make you read this and I don't have to translate it myself. <laughs> um, but it, it was, I thought it wasn't bad. I thought it was a valiant attempt. Right. So, uh, and judging by the reviews I see on websites, some people have fallen into fall in love with it just as much as Russia has. Good. I, I think the translation is always hard in part because it, it depends on the publisher and whether they say do a straight across translation or do a culturally appropriate translation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I was very disappointed when we got hold of the, the Russian translation of the first Toby Day book because we had all been saying like, what's her nickname going to be? Since from what I understand, Russian nicknaming, it wouldn't just be October Toby. It would be something else. We're like, what would be culturally appropriate? Toby. Oh, okay. The problem with the name like October in a Russian book is that it's the kind of name kids had in the 30s and 40s and 50s mm-hmm. when they were patriotic communist names. So the name October. Oh, God. Yeah. That, that's right. Because of the October Revolution. October right. was actually named. So the, the actual name itself just carries so much cult, uh, you know, kind so of cultural baggage. Baggage. Yeah. But but that's the other thing is like, well, why didn't the publisher contact me and go, what else could we call her? Because some publishers will do that and some will not. I I picked up. Um, I found on online the Russian translation of like Harry Potter books once, hmm. and I opened them just for curiosity. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> on the flip side, I. I once read in a Russian translation this uh, fantasy series. I think it was called Bureau 13. Uh, it's, it's Oh, by Nick Pilata. Yes, yes. Uh, trilogy. I picked them up in the Russian translation when I was a little kid, and I loved it. It was great. And when I moved to Canada, I just uh, my brother had the books. He was still in Russia. I didn't have them. I decided I was, I'm just going to hunt down the English books. What? Mm. Oh, my God. It turns out the Russian translators fixed so much. Oh, no. <laughs> um, from... Well, for one thing, the books were updated um, in the 90s, and except that whoever edited it did such a horrible job, they, they updated only half the dates, so sometimes a war would be referred to as the 79 war and then the 89 war. That's a long war. And then it turned out that the author hadn't act- he had a Russian character in there, but he hadn't actually, he didn't even go down to like Brighton Beach and talk to a Russian immigrant. He just threw in a couple of Russian words, he knew, spelled them wrongly, and like, and her story, once you update her to the post-communist era, didn't even make sense. So that, yeah, ow. It's you know how sometimes you run into the one movie that's better than the book. This was the one translation that was better than the original. <laughs> oh dear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
something uh, Raiden and I were talking about when I was putting together names of speculative fiction authors. And I, f- I felt like I noticed there was a trend to have, of course, now we've talked about how we have so many of them in paranormal romance and urban fantasy. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I, I felt like I was coming up with more names in sci-fi than fantasy itself. Yeah, I, I honestly think that's true. Um, for all that there's this this very stereotyped men are science fiction, women are fantasy divide. Uh, epic fantasy got taken over by men mm-hmm. quite some time, if it was ever not men. And most of the, the fantasy authors, the female fantasy authors I can think of, were writing in the 80s. And they never made it out of the mid-list, so they didn't necessarily survive the mid-list purge of the 90s. Mm. Um, but but pretty much all the epic fantasy is very male, and a lot of it is is very male power fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know. th- I think the one name I, I can say with confidence, but and that is even that is uh, a duo, man woman duo, is Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman of mm. Dragonlance fame. Yeah. Um, Mercedes Lackey Mercedes, does yeah. fantasy, um, and she is one of the few people, she, she came out of the gate so fast and so hard that she was able to establish herself in multiple genres before the one name to a genre rule kind of locked down. Um, and she is a, fan- a straight fantasist. She, you know, her Herald books are straight up fantasy. They're not urban at all. She was one of the early pioneers of urban fantasy with her Bedlam's Bards and her Serrated Edge books. And she co-writes with a lot of other authors. So she, she has been very helpful in getting other female authors, kind of helping them uh, raise their profile. Tanya Huff mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. does urban fantasy and traditional fantasy. And I love her. She is one of my favorite human beings. Elizabeth Bear is doing fantasy right now. Um, she jumps all over the genre map. She is wonderful. And her, her Shattered Pillars uh, books are a... Third world, I think it's third world. I always get confused as to which the worlds are. They're a straight-up fantasy that has no connection to this world, um, but is really based in Mongolia. Oh, interesting. Which is nice. I mean, she's just doing some some exquisite work. Catherine Valenti is primarily fantasy. Um, she's wonderful. She is very dense. Reading Cat is kind of like eating a flourless chocolate cake with your mind. Um, You're either going to love it or hate it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is difficult to predict ahead of time, which it will be. But she brings an enormous amount of literary merit to that density. I am also not unbiased. She is one of my best friends. Uh, But we didn't start out as friends. We started out as nemesi. So maybe I'm I'm less biased than I think I am. Um, Anne McCaffrey is such an interesting example because I remember when I first picked up her books, having knowing nothing about the world of Pern or the mm-hmm, author, mm-hmm. I assumed they were fantasy, but they're actually sci-fi. Yeah, and I believe the first uh, either short stories or novels were even published in a sci-fi magazine. Yes. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people that were very confused when that switch happened. Like, wait, this was this was sci-fi all along. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt about it, and I. I mean, Anne McCaffrey was my gateway drug into genre fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, a f- friend of mine in fifth grade gave me the first three Pern books. It's, like I remember this so clearly. She gave me the first three Pern books as a birthday present. Um, and I finally, like, 
my copy of Dragonflight fi- disintegrated in my hands <laughs> last year. Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> um, and she's like, "Drag, look, dragons!" And I'm like, "Awesome!" And then we we get into more, and I'm like, "This is this is not quite the flavor I was expecting. I still like it, but and I'm then, a little, mm. it's not quite what I was expecting." Um, and then as I got older and I was kind of able to, to see, there's a line in, this is going to sound ridiculous. There's a line in Dragonflight when Lessa is talking about Ramoth and how she can see beyond the, the, holy shit, I have a dragon into the dark parts of the dragon's mind. And that's kind of how I feel about Anne McCaffrey's books now. Like, I can still see what made me so happy about them, but there's a lot of bullshit underneath all of that. Yeah, I I was... I was devastated. Um, and, and I'm not exaggerating that when... I was I was one of those kids that read very early. Like, mm-hmm. I, start, I figured out reading when I was about three, and I just kept going. There was very little I was forbidden to read, um, I started reading Stephen King at nine. Like that is is kind of where things were, and I don't think that this damaged me particularly because anything I didn't understand, I just assumed was not important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I just skip over it. Um, this did lead to some books becoming magically a million times better when I went back and reread <laughs> them as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> like I had always dismissed Stephen King's The Dead Zone as being just terrible. I'm like, this is a boring, dull pointless book and uh, I was doing a reread of the complete works of Stephen King when I was like 22 or something and was I I went I will force myself through the dead zone so that this is a true reread oh my god this book is fucking amazing what the shit (laughs) so you know you did get those discoveries but you also got things I went back to reread the Crystal Singer books Mm -hmm. and I still think that Crystal Singer is a fantastic book yeah. The first one is amazing. It's it's just a, an enthralling world. The entire setup of you can have everything, but you will inevitably lose yourself. It's great, um, and I'm like this. This is the this is amazing. You know, I'm I'm just I love singing and I love crystals and I'm just gonna do this forever. And then I reread the second one, uh, Kilashandra. Uh huh. Which is essentially love right from first rape. Yep. Like, he kidnaps her and he rapes her and so she falls in love with him and he turns out to be the perfect love of her life and the guy that can make everything better for her. And I was like, oh my god. How, oh my god. How is... Th- no! What? No! So I, read, I went back and I read it again. So I'm like, well, maybe I just read it too fast. And so I missed the consent. Somehow <laughs> I did not miss the consent. <laughs> There was no consent to miss. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that was devastating. But that was also... Sorry, go ahead. in a lot of, of her books, is that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But uh, it's also product of its time. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, my editors at DAW have been incredibly good about letting me tell my stories the way I want to tell them. But when we were doing the first book in the Toby series and we were looking at the urban fantasy market and where the sales were, I did get pressured to put sex in the first book. Mm-hmm. 
So there is a sex scene in the first book that is problematic as fuck. It's like the consent is there, but there is emotional abuse there. There, given the chance to do it over, that is one of the very few things about the series that I would completely change. I would not put that in the first book. But everyone said, if you want to succeed, if if you want this series to go on, so you can do all of these other things you want to do, you have to do this one thing. And Anne McCaffrey got a lot of that. You can see a huge amount of the tropes in romance that were popular and common in her science fiction novels that were intended mm-hmm. for women. Um, that was a story with Suzanne Collins in The Hunger Games, right? I believe the love triangle is only there because she, she was told, well, you're a young yeah, adult. you have to twilight it up. Yeah, you have yeah. to have team, team guy one and team guy two. Yeah, and sometimes... It's worth it. Like, I don't feel that the, that, the, that the love triangle in The Hunger Games destroys the validity of The Hunger Games. No. And I don't think she would have been able to get the first book to shelf without being willing to put that in. And you can see that by the third book to shelf, they've really backed off on messing with her at all. They're like, she knows what she's doing. She has a name she's established. Um, Anne McCaffrey didn't get messed with after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um and, and you can earn not getting messed with, but problematic things come in because that's what the market wants. And I want the market to stop wanting them. Uh, but I also, I wish I had been able to say no. I feel really terrible about it now because I try so hard to not create a bad environment for my readers. And I put something problematic in because I was asked to, not because it served the story. Mm-hmm. And I wish that we were at a point where people didn't feel like that was necessary. And and to loop back a bit to our most depressing podcast topic ever, if you ask 20 authors, have you been asked to put something problematic of a sexual nature into a book? I guarantee you that more than 75% of the positive responses will come from women. Because we are the ones where our characters are expected to be sexy. Our characters are expected to get their romance on and to be all about the boys. And you never hear people saying, when is Harry Dresden going to get raped? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that doesn't make it past the male authors. It is another component of that whole thing. <sighs> Happy Saturday, everybody! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. We're so happy. So happy. So happy. So so let's talk about Encrypted. I have not read any of the Toby Day books yet. Uh, emphasis on the yet. But I, I read Encrypted Encrypted. Oh, God fuck. <laughs> can I can I can I bring up the thing that I found, Raiden? What yeah. do you find? Oh God. I hope I'm sorry. This is the part in my nightmares that I've had where you said the podcast on fire because I've said this. I found an accidental Nazi reference. Like There's an accidental a- Nazi reference? In oh the- my god, where? <laughs> and this is, I'm an editor, so this is the part where I didn't go, like, why did the author, I was like, why did the editor not notice? Is it, is it in Discount Armageddon? Yes. Okay, where is it? In the end of chapter four, where uh, Verity, the, and I'm kind of narrating for maybe some listeners who haven't read that book, uh, she's, just, she, she's basically kind of a monster hunter, and she's discussing this non-sanctioned, bestial monster who's dangerous and she says she'll relocate it if she can trap it and do that and if she can't she'll resort to a more final solution and yeah (laughs) 
Um, final solution is what Hitler called the plan to exterminate the Jews. It was the final solution to the Jewish problem. Oh, that's great. And none of my Jewish readers caught that either. I have, I have, um, several actually practicing Jewish readers, uh, in my beta, in my beta pool. Uh, let me like oh, wow. Oh, 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 I, I, I kind of feel like an asshole. It's just that I did oh, notice no, it. Not an asshole at all. Um, let's see. What could we change it for? Change it to permanent solution? Is that as bad? No, because it, like it's that specific phrase that made me stop and okay. Look, I was just oh my let's, god. Let's observe the magic of editing. I am going to while we're doing this, you're going to hear me typing. I am emailing. <laughs> the guy at Jaw at uh, Daw who manages any updates to books to ask him if he can let me know when discount Armageddon which is the book in question. And the thing about this phrase is that if you Wikipedia it it will literally take you to the article. Just it, yeah. yeah. Let me know when discount Armageddon is going to be reprinted. I appear to have made an accidental <laughs> reference to the Third Reich. I would like to change it, please. In all ongoing, uh, in all ongoing additions. No, my family also has relatives that that did not make it out of the final solution. Um, unfortunately, uh, we are from parts of Eastern Europe that were very negatively, as a population, uh, impacted. Um, and uh, I have relatives that are in the United States. Uh, perhaps less than legally because they came over during that time period. So I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to start off like that. And I have emailed my publisher, who will not respond because it's a Saturday, but we'll be able to get that changed in future editions. Um, Look at the magic of feedback. That is the magic of Civil feedback. discourse. Civil discourse. And that's part of why I try to assume um, ignorance rather than malice. This is a great example. Like, yeah, I, I absolutely did not assume anything. It was just like, oh, wow, that just kind of slipped by. <laughs> but had you emailed me and been like, oh, my God, you Jew-hating Nazi bitch, I probably would not have gone, oh, my God, let me look that up in the manuscript. Oh, my God, that's horrible. Let me email my publisher. And would instead have been like, okay. Gosh, you sure do know how to cuss at people you've never met before. <laughs> so get angry or, or get upset, um, and we should all do that. But when contacting people to request positive change, we'll start by assuming ignorance and then move on to malice when they're dicks. Yep. Yep. So I have fixed, well, I haven't fixed it, but I've <laughs> taken the steps to fixing it. <laughs> <laughs> And it's 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 really okay. I mean, stuff slips by all the time, and yeah. that's what feedback and and catching is for. Um, I'm obsessed with the Black Death. To kind of segue <laughs> a little bit before we go back to uh, to talking about encrypted, which we never really managed to start doing, so it's not that big of an interruption. I'm obsessed <laughs> with the Black Death. I love the Black Death, and I'm a huge proponent of the hemorrhagic fever theory of the disease, uh, which holds that it cannot possibly have been caused by bubonic plague because the two are so symptomatically non-compatible that it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And there is research both to support and, and unsupport this school of thought. I enjoy the fact that I can argue passionately with people about something that has no impact whatsoever on the modern world. <laughs> I, I, I find that very soothing. Like, let's fight about the Black Death for a while. Okay, we've got that out of our systems. We no longer need to fight with each other. We can do other shit. Um, 
one of the big supports of the hemorrhagic fever theory is that people descended from folks who survived in areas of Europe that were hit repeatedly and hard by the Black Death have this receptor gene in their immune systems, um, the MR15632 receptor gene, that makes them more resistant to certain hemorrhagic fevers, which would indicate that their ancestors had encountered and battled off and developed a resistance to hemorrhagic fevers. And I will talk about the Black Death for like eight hours, if you let me. That That's just like, yay, the Black Death! So I was talking to a friend of mine about the Black Death, and he's like, wow, you know, you really love the Black Death. You're really passionate. And your writing is always better when you're really passionate about what you're writing about. So why don't you write a book about the Black Death? You could write a book about, you know, you always talk about how we're going to dig into a plague pit and the Black Death's going to come back and we're all going to die because we're not going to know what's killing us. We're not going to be able to develop a defense. And so the Black Death could get back and it could start killing people and everyone could be dying and, you know, it'd be great. And we'd just wind up with the people that were resistant to the disease trying to find a cure so that their children would have a chance to live. And I kind of looked at him and went, "Mm mm-hmm. That is, that is supported by the science. That's true. You have just described a scenario that fits the science as we know it of the hemorrhagic fever theory of the Black Death. Yeah, I know. It's great. It'll be great. You realize you've just asked me to write about a plague that kills everyone but the white people, right? <laughs> yeah, the nervous laughter was, was what came after he stopped staring at me in abject horror. Like, it does not matter what the science says. That is full-on bimbos of the death sun territory. I am not going there. Um, Book two of Save the Pearls coming soon to a self-published oh. theory. <laughs> well, there, there is a, a fantastic mystery by Sharon McCrum called Bimbos of the Death Sun, mm-hmm. um, which is about a physicist who wrote a book about sunspot damage to the brain. Basically saying that it was it was a gene link thing and blah 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 blah, and the decision he came to based on the scientific behavior of the radiation in question was that only the female scientists would suffer this brain damage, and he genuinely did not understand how sexist that was until they slapped uh, the title "Bimbos of the Death Sun" on his science fiction novel and put it out with a trashy barbarian cover. <laughs> it's possible to make these mistakes and never notice yeah. because no one has pointed them out to you. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're back in the land of, of ignorance versus malice. But once someone points that out, don't do that. Like, yeah. Save the Pearls book two should never happen, mm-hmm. ever. But if you, if you haven't heard about Save the Pearls, kids, you should look it up and read the author explaining why it's not racist. Because this will be a great education for you in what not to do. I... I've only read the first half. Um, Actually, I, managed... yeah, I read the no, Amazon I sample, and that had like so much racism in three pages. PDF. I just wow. <laughs> I managed to score a PDF from methods that I will not name because I didn't want to actually like give money to this crap. <laughs> I I understand, but I only made it through the first half before my uncomfortable squirming because. Not only is it racist and horrible, the things that the author does to science are basically unspeakable. And the writing is bad. So, I mean, you've got death, you've got your murder, you've got your jaywalking. Oh, I don't need murder, death, and jaywalking. (laughs) Oh, and, and I just, there are things where I can't, like... 
A friend of mine wrote a book. This is a common statement I will make because many friends of mine have written books. But a friend of mine wrote a book. It's a quite good book. I like it a lot, except for the part where it falls into the extremely white American romanticization of the Roma. Mm. And I'm like, do you realize that Gypsy is an ethnic slur? And that I kind of want to hit you right now. And and no, no idea. Because it is not a thing that anyone in this person's proofing pool would ever have said. And, and she didn't hand it to me before she published it. She handed it to me after she published it. She's like, I wrote a book and I'm going, I'm never oh. showing this to my father. <laughs> He'll murder you to death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But thank you for telling me about the accidental Nazism. I'm sure that my publisher will be horrified. It'll be kind of awesome. (laughs) This one much better than in my dreams, where you basically loathed me on site for that. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Apparently, this has bothered me subconsciously much more than I thought it would. Well, I'm I'm glad. You know, I've I've had people get extremely mad at me when I ask them not to use the phrase gypped in my presence. Mm -hmm. It is a racial slur. It is personally offensive to me. You are implying things about me and my family, whether you mean to or not. Mm-hmm. Stop it. And I've had people get genuinely mad. Like, oh, it's not real. It's denatured. It's not a real. You should. You're being oversensitive. I'm like, no, no, I'm really not. Yeah. So um, any author that frankly gets mad at you for pointing out, hey, you accidentally referenced the Nazis. Maybe <laughs> you want to fix that. Uh, it really is not an author that you should want to be friends with. And I have to say, after this podcast, I genuinely would love to be friends with you. Yeah. <laughs> it would be fun. I like friends. <sighs> okay, so, so back to encrypted. Back to encrypted. Yes, that the uncomfortable things are out of the way for five minutes, because this is the most uncomfortable day ever. <laughs> the reason I was like, oh my God, Alina, you need to read this, is because we are both huge So You Think You Can Dance fans. Yay! <laughs> And the fact that your heroine was on an XP of So You Think You Can Dance and, like, uses her salsa skills in killing monsters is awesome. It's awesome. I loved it. I have to say, though, how sad it is that Dance or Die is not, like, a So You Think You Can Dance Hunger Games mashup. You, so here's something that'll delight you as an actual So You Think You Can Dance fan. When you're, whenever you're reading about Verity dancing, just picture Chelsea Hightower. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, okay. I loved her. <laughs> that is the season that was on when I was watching, and Chelsea was completely my Verity. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, go on YouTube and look up Chelsea Hightower or Chelsea Mark Bleeding Love. Yes. Yes. Which is one of yes. the best dance routines that show has ever done. Yeah. Yeah. I started with season four, and I have to say, uh-huh. none of them lived up quite. No. No. But yes, we are talking about the book and not, <laughs> and not the show. Um, but we love the show, and uh, Vegas Week starts next week. Yes. Yes. Finally. I love traditions, but half the time it's like, this person is great. I can't wait to watch them every week for what do you mean you get, what? Like Heather Morris, who plays Brittany on Glee, Mm -hmm. made it to Vegas and got cut. She didn't make the top 20. What? Yeah. 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 I I would much rather have seen her on So You Think You Can Dance rather than Glee, which 
It's one of the few TV shows I've actually rage quit. Wow. <laughs> I, I have rage quit two shows. I keep watching Glee out of morbid fascination. I abandoned Glee and I couldn't make it to the last se- through the last season of House. Yeah, I understand that. I rage quit Torchwood and Supernatural. Mm. None of which are in encrypted, but whatever. Encrypted. Right. So the the kind of the premise. I mean, I read this like two months ago, and I I I originally started reading Feed when Mark was reading it, and I was like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna. I'm going to go one chapter at a time at Mark's pace, and that lasted four chapters. <laughs> and, like, I I binge on your books. I can't... Yay! <laughs> I finished Discount Armageddon in a night. It was great. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't then send me an email immediately afterward going, when's the next one? I love people who binge read. <laughs> no, no. What I did was I yelled at Sunil a lot. <laughs> But yeah, so the main protagonist who we are imagining is Chelsea Hightower. Her name is Verity Price. Mm-hmm. She comes from, for our listeners who haven't read, uh, she's part of a family of um, people who are aware of the cryptozoological part of the world. So non-human monster, sentient monster, you know, inhabitants of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it so happens that they are kind of splinter group. They've abandoned the covenant of St. George because rather than kill everyone, they wanted to uh, maybe not kill some of them. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And the first book, and uh, you said the second one, but then the later, the others may talk about different family members, right? Right. It's um, about Verity. Yeah, the first two are about Verity. Uh, Have you read Kelly Armstrong's Women of the Otherworld? I've read some of them. Okay, you know how she changes narrators every volume or two? Yeah. I'm doing that. Okay. So the first two books are about Verity, and that's uh, Discount Armageddon and Midnight Blue Light Special. Um, The second two books are about her big brother, Alex, and that's Half Off Ragnarok and Pocket Apocalypse. (laughs) Which I just like saying, like, pocket apocalypse, pocket <laughs> apocalypse. It's, it's fun. It's fun to say. It feels fun in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and other statements that really don't work out of context. Uh, we're going to go back to Verity with book five, which is currently titled Professional Goreography. Uh, but may wind up getting a title change if too many people are confused by it. Uh, and that is the number that are, are currently bought by my publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the sales stay good, which, you know, God willing and the creek don't rise, because I'd really, really like to keep going, we're going to have two books about her baby sister, Antimony, mm-hmm. after that. And then two books about Sarah, who is their cousin. And finally, with book 10, we will get to Alice. And that is titled Spelunking Through Hell, A Visitor's Guide to the Underworld. Um, (laughs) Which really, I just want to write a 10-book series so that I can earn the right to title a book Spelunking Through Hell. (laughs) I think that's reasonable. I see no problems with this. Yeah, so it's it's a lot of fun. I studied folklore at the University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears. And so I get to play with with all of the things that don't fit in the Toby Day books. Uh, The series of mine that we're not discussing much right now is based entirely on Eurocentric ideas of fairy, on on kind of Shakespeare's fairy, Mm -hmm. which has resulted in, while I love it passionately, I am not above admitting when there are problems. It's resulted in an incredibly white series. Mm Mm-hmm. 
because I'm dealing with this narrow Eurocentric fairy land. Um, there are no other supernatural creatures in that world. And the only way that I can bring in non white people, um, is to either have humans, which means you're automatically at a power disadvantage, uh, or to find other cultures where their local kami or fairy or menahune folklore supports being kind of absorbed and appropriated by this Eurocentric viewpoint. Uh, so it's this this constant internal struggle between I'm not comfortable with how white the series is and I'm not comfortable just picking up someone else's folklore and running off cackling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but with the encrypted books, I have total freedom. Mm-hmm. They're, they're basically running on not everything is real. Some things are people misreporting what they saw, not understanding what they encountered, uh, that sort of thing. But a lot of things are real. So I get cryptids from all over the world that have somehow wound up where the Price family is. Uh, it means you have a higher proportion of sentient cryptids because, let's face it, Mongolian deathworms are not importing themselves to North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody may import them, and and that is actually a problem, because I I deal with invasive species in this series, (laughs) like idiots who thought that cockatrice made good game animals. (laughs) That was a terrible plan! Um, But for the most part, you're getting to see the the sentient creatures from around the world and, and deal with monster hunters, monster keepers, cryptozoologists from around the world, and that's great, and it's about an actually stable family, which is a nice change for me. Um, cause everybody gets on reasonably well, uh, except when they're blowing each other up. How right. much do we love the Ashling mice? Aislinn? I said Ashling. Aislinn? It's okay. okay. Uh, they, there's no pronunciation guide, so I just kind of assume everything is correct. Um, <laughs> the Aislinn mice are a, uh, a colony of extremely devoutly religious talking mice, uh, that worship the Price family as gods. Um, there are actual chemical combinations that can occur in the brain that cause religious mania. Mm-hmm. And for the Aislinn, they have developed religious mania as a survival mechanism because they become passionately devoted to a thing, uh, whether it be a tree or a toaster or a family of humans. They'll become passionately devoted, and then they will stay together as a group, which when you are mice is an important thing if you don't <laughs> want to get eaten. Um, and they are they are eidetic memories. They remember everything, and they turn everything that their chosen object of religious obsession does into holy writ, into religious rituals. Uh, so they're extremely silly. They're a very silly group. They'll be on you. Hail! I've, I've actually got the list of Aislinn Mouse holidays in my functional file. Oh Some of the things, <laughs> it, guys, so, it is hilarious. You know the the holiday of pack our bags. You know, we're leaving, and yeah. <laughs> so help me God, Daddy, I'll kiss the next man who walks down through that door. Yeah, the, um, the, the feast day of the violent priestess, mother of the noisy priestess, bride of the unimpressed god, um, the holy ceremony of now Jonathan. Those screaming yams won't harvest themselves. <laughs> Um, the celebration of she's your daughter too. It's your turn to wash the icker out of her hair, you know. And and these things just happen. Um, some of them are connected. Like on March seventh, you have the holy festival of no, I don't know what it is, but it's bleeding all over the floor. Uh, followed on March eighth by the celebration of getting out the blood stains with baking soda, meat tenderizer, and bleach. 
<laughs> um, and, and so they remember all these things. And I love the Aislinn because they're almost a microcosm of what I'm trying to do and, and hoping I can successfully do with this series. Because you tell people, no, no, the best thing about this book is the talking mice. And they look at you like you have hit your head. No. You know, this is, this is well, a silly, terrible thing. It, it's silly and it's funny, but I also love how what they actually what that actually does is the names of those holidays is that it lets me as a reader build up this image of the family. Like yeah. when with the holiday of so help me daddy, I'll kiss the next man who walks through the door. I have always assumed that that's how. Well, since reading it always, it was how long ago I read the book that that's how you know the Price family got. Thomas Price was that his name got married. Yeah, uh, that's probably how he Healy. That you know he just happened to be the next guy who walked through the door. <laughs> She, Alice really wanted him to be the next guy to walk through the door, though. I'm, I'm really excited about getting to them. Um, but the other thing about the Aislinn mice is that, that they are so serious. Everything they, they, they don't think they're funny. Everything they do is extremely serious. They are fulfilling a religious obligation to this family. And uh, part of why anytime a, a kid goes out, you know, you have Verity with her colony, Alex has his, is they are essentially the living black box. Mm-hmm. The mice will tell you how every member of this family in the last four generations has died. They spend days in remembrances where they talk about these people who have left. Um, there is the, you know, the remembrance of the patient priestess, mother of the unimpressed God, who left us too soon. And they never forget, and they can't forget, because that is what they are for. So they're actually this incredibly candy-colored, extremely depressing thing. <laughs> uh, and that's what I'm trying to do with this series. Like, I'm luring you into my pitcher plant, which is great fun. Um, I'm also writing all of the backfill. So if you mm-hmm. go to my website, um, you'll find that there's a, a page under the encrypted menu uh, there are a couple pages under the encrypted menu. There's the field guide, which has illustrations and scientific breakdowns for a lot of the the, uh, the various cryptids that you'll meet, including the Aislinn mice. I they, they're adorable. All of the illustrations for the field guide are done by Corey Bing, who draws the webcomic uh, Skin Deep, and she is fabulous. I I love the crap out of her. Um, but you'll also find a listing for short stories, and right now the short stories are almost entirely about. Jonathan Healy and Francis Brown, um, which are Alice's parents and Alice is Verity's grandmother. So you're going as far back as 1928 as we're following this family forward. Um, and the majority of those stories are, are free downloads. I've got them in multiple ebook formats, you know, pull them down, read them, and you get that family backstory. Uh, and it's, it's filling in the things that I couldn't do in the main series. Like, these people have been dead for 50 years. They're not going to come up in Verity's day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. But you get context on some of those mouse holidays, and you, you start to... I'm so upset, because I'm almost to the point where Fran dies. Mm. Which isn't a spoiler, because she died long yeah, before, before she started. But but I'm almost to that point, and I'm like, I don't, I don't want her to go. Mm-hmm. But she has to. The whole family starts falling apart when Fran dies. And in the modern day, almost everything that is wrong is because of Fran dying. Um, So I'm excited. Like, I get to break stuff. Makes me happy. (laughs) I love the encrypted books. They make me super, super happy. They are super silly, but they're super serious. And I got to pick my cover artist, who is wonderful. I love Ali Fell. He is just the best. 
Um, and he's, he's listens so good. Like I don't have cover approval. That's not a thing that comes with contracts at my level. Mm -hmm. Um, honestly, it's not a thing that comes with contracts of people 10 steps above my level. You don't get that till you're Stephen King. Um, but I have had a lot of input on the covers that Ali's done and on this is what these characters look like. This is how these characters carry themselves. Uh, if you need an actress to reference when you're painting her, this is kind of who she looks like. Uh, and the second cover, uh, Midnight Blue Light Special, you've got Verity and her cousin Sarah standing on a roof. And Sarah is wearing like the bulkiest sweater I think you will ever see on an urban fantasy cover. <laughs> Seriously, she is so bundled up. The, the idea that she has a figure under there is pure guesswork. And that's perfect. She is extremely uncomfortable with the idea that anyone would be looking at her. Please don't look at me. I don't like this plan. Has anyone told you that I'm actually a hyper-evolved telepathic wasp? Because I think that is important at this stage. And, and but, so the but as those of us who've read the book, we all know which boy would like to prove that wrong. Well, it'd be nice <laughs> if Sarah figured that out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she is a hyper-evolved parasitic wasp, which kind of complicates things. Um, I love the cuckoos. They're, they're, they're horrible. They're going to destroy everything. <laughs> it's going to be so great. I think that's the episode title. <laughs> so I really like encrypted and i really am grateful that you pointed out the problematic thing in chapter four like i've i have am so happy about that actually because <laughs> now i've been told in a friendly way and i'm not going to find out about it when someone asks the question at a convention or something <laughs> i think i also saw francis's name spelled with an i in one of the chapter like oh i'm sure that happened uh, <laughs> so. um, that actually no i know that happened because we we had some at there was a thing mm -hmm. um that's already been turned in for the reprint um okay. <laughs> yeah it's it's amazing like how many times typos can be introduced oh i know uh, i'm an editor but in my work you know we'll get the final printed book and then we're flipping through and we're like how did we not fix this well, we've been over this book with a fine-toothed comb. I know, right? I actually, I had somebody email to tell me that he was never going to read any of my books. Uh, unfortunately, it's almost always a he when I'm getting these emails. And it's, it's not that I don't love you, gentlemen. It's that apparently individuals of your gender are the ones that are most likely to send these emails to authors. Um, but I, I did get an email from someone who wanted me to know that he would never read any of my books because I was so sloppy as to allow a typo to get through on the back cover of Feed. What? So, so clearly, you know, I, I was awful. Now, one, authors, for the most part, don't have any input on the back cover of their book. Like, we don't write it, we don't typeset it, that is all done by the publisher. We don't get an opportunity to fix things. We see it when you see it. But apart from that, I'm like, typo? What type of, I have the back cover of feed framed and hanging on my wall. Like, I think I'd have noticed if there was a typo. So I went and looked at it a lot. And then I finally did a thing that, that I try not to do, which is where I emailed back to ask for more information. Like, not to argue, but it can be taken that way because you're mm -hmm. going, prove it. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, thank you for bringing this to my attention. Da, da, da. Uh, what you talking about? What you talking about? You know, could you tell me? Because I can't find it. The back cover of Feed was composed by the editor in Orbit's UK office. 
Mm-hmm. So at the end of the, the, the back cover text, it goes, the truth will out. This is the accurate British idiom. It is not a typo. It is just not American. But this gentleman read it as a typo. <laughs> do Americans not use that? Oh. Um, some do. It, uh, it is not 100% unheard of, da-da-da. But for the most part, it would be the truth will come out. Uh, mm-hmm. The truth will well, get wait, out. Wait, was the book um, published in, like, was it edited in, in Great Britain? Um, in England? Orbit is, Orbit is interesting. I, I really like Orbit, and part of why I like it is because uh, Orbit always acquires world English, which means that they publish, they get to publish the book in any English-speaking region. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do that because Orbit is actually a UK imprint with a US branch. Mm. So it was edited in America by an American editor, uh, Dong Wan Song, who I, I love passionately as an editor and am incredibly sad has left editing. He's uh, working at Kobo, setting up ebook vending now. Mm. Um, so it was edited in America. And the cover was created in America, but as far as I'm aware, the back cover text and most of the marketing was written by our UK office. Right. Uh-huh. So. You know, I have a, a, a funny story that uh, about this kind of cross-cultural typos versus, uh, you know, local dialect. And this is something that happened to... Um, actually, the program director of the publishing program of which I'm a graduate... Uh, she, they, uh, so Canadian book, but they freelanced a copy editor who's American mm. and they figured, you know, aside from color, color, spellings of analyze, things like that, it's not really a problem. But here's what happened. The, this American editor didn't know the word francophone, okay. which it didn't even occur to our the Canadian publishing company to maybe like even point that out on any kind of instruction because to us Canadians anglophone and francophone are such commonplace words. So the editor, the copy editor had changed every in- instance of francophone to francophobe. Ah! <gasps> ah! Oh! Oh no! Oh, I mean, I, I've, I've encountered a couple things with overzealous copy editors doing a global change on a book. Um, and I'm like, that, that, is, that is wrong. And now I have to stet you 90 times. But it's never seen print. Oh, God. I don't oh, think that's God. up for it. But even like, getting back, can you imagine? Like, oh, wait, that's. Oh, that was an error. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I love is Australia is on the other side of what I frequently jokingly call the international cunt line. <laughs> um, if you're in Australia, cunt is approximately as bad a word as dick, mm-hmm. which carries a little more weight than it does in America, mm-hmm. but but not much. It's still less weighted than fuck. Mm-hmm. I find this extremely egalitarian. Yeah. Like, it's great. It's no longer the worst insult ever, and we can say it if it is contextually appropriate and we're not slagging our friends to death. It's, it's fantastic. That doesn't mean that I don't have friends who cringe when I come back from a trip to Australia and are just like, please reset to American profanity. Please reset to American profanity. <laughs> hey, um, hey, you know what? Shakespeare used it as a joke in Hamlet. Yeah. So... A good friend of mine 
got married and her boyfriend's from Australia. They they met through World of Warcraft. It was the sweetest thing. He is perfect for her. Everything is great. We have the wedding and a huge chunk of his family flew over from Australia for the wedding. And his grandfather gets up and takes the microphone for the ta- for the for the toasts. And you can see this coming on the horizon. <laughs> and he's like when our boy came home and told us about this girl, I said, you'd be a right cunt to let her go. Oh, God. <laughs> and my friend's entire extremely liberal Jewish Californian family went white. <laughs> like, things were dropped. The, you could have heard a fly drop. Like, it was amazing. I have never heard that larger room shut up that resoundingly. Um, and, and then there had to be some, some cultural uh, explanations given really, really fast. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Lightning. It was just the best moment. Like, oh my God. It's just so easy as somebody, um, I mean, I speak English in some ways even better than Russian. I sort of, cause I didn't have, I don't have an academic education in Russian, but it doesn't matter. I think in it, I dream in it, but profanity in a foreign language never quite registers the same way profanity in your own language legis- registers. Mm-hmm. So I can swear in particular, I'm married to a Navy man. So, you know, I can swear in English. Till the air turns blue, words I would barely dare to think in Russian. <laughs> it's just so easy. You, I I love cussing. I think it's fantastic because it is a quick way of waiting a say. It's a quick way of waiting a sentence. I, I see people go, you know, oh, well, cussing is the sign of a weak mind, and it's really not mm. because I can say fuck that, fuck that so hard, and I have immediately gotten across my point without having to give you a paragraph. Yep. Sometimes it, it is the bacon of conversation. If your conversation consists entirely of bacon, it's probably not very nutritionally helpful, but a little bit can really spice it properly. Yeah, there is a post going around Tumblr that... <laughs> yeah, that, that the word fuck has some kind of come to the point of well in the first world war people. yeah the word fuck just means a noun is about to occur out of, out of the way. <laughs> and that's that was in a specific context and let me see if i can fu- i've been reblogging so much i know dan Dwayne reblogged it recently but yeah i was like the soldiers of the first world war swore so much that fuck just meant they're about to say a noun yep yeah or fucking just meant they're about to say a noun <laughs> i can roll with that i really really can um, and I, I love watching new parents that swear a lot, try not to swear in front of their children. Cause it's just adorable. I have an adorable story that this is what comes when you, you know, happens in military families is our, uh, a couple of, uh, friends of ours, they have these beautiful, adorable children and their youngest little boy uh, was once found by his mother standing on the porch yelling, fucking squirrels, get away from my fucking house. Oh, Okay, that's great. Like, I know this word is powerful. I will use it. <laughs> my my mom convinced my dad that he had been swearing too much when we were on a family ski vacation in the Rockies. And they were chatting with another couple on the hill and said, yep, and our two children are here as my older sister had just challenged me to a ski race. 
And then the bitch cheated and took off before it was ready, set, go. So she whizzes by, and then I whiz by, hollering at the top of my six-year-old lungs, God damn it all, get your ass back here! <laughs> uh, let's and face it, children's swearing is adorable. It is, and Dad modified his language quite a bit right <laughs> after that. <laughs> hey, Dad? <laughs> yeah, my mom used to listen to the Rocky Horror soundtrack all the time. <laughs> Over and over and over and over and over and over until the day that I walked into the room and said, Mommy, what's a Transylvania? <laughs> and then she took it off the rotation for a little while. Yeah. Uh, well, I think now well, that we've, we've been going for like two hours and ventured into personal anecdotes. So, yes, yes we have. Are there, do you have any last questions or, or anything before you release me with a tag on my ear back into the wild? <laughs> um,. Let's see. Oh, you're so you're working on some novel, which I'm sorry, I'm not going to read because I draw the line at parasitic tapeworms. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> many, many people do. Um, but, you know, as always, I hope it makes a lot of money because I, I don't know if you've seen pictures of my cats, uh, but I have two Maine Coons. They are both over 20 pounds in weight and they will eat me. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And no, no. Um, yeah, Parasite comes out in October. I, I actually, I apparently tripped because I, uh, I have five books coming out this year, uh, which was an accident, I swear. Um, Midnight Blue Light came out in, in March, and uh, Indexing, which is going on right now, uh, is unfortunately a U.S.-only serial uh, being published by the Kindle Serials Program. Uh, it will be collected as a World English print edition when it's done, so people outside the U.S. will be able to purchase it, I believe, in December. Um, and that is kind of what happens when you cross Grimm with Criminal Minds. And it's uh, awesome. Sorry. It's awesome. That's, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm I'm actually working on the 10th installment right now, which given that the 2nd installment just came out means that I'm barely comfortable with my backlog um, because I believe in working as far ahead of time as possible. Uh, in August, um, Velveteen versus the Multiverse comes out, which is the second volume of the Velveteen versus wacky superhero adventures um and that is kind of akin to uh to encrypted in the sense that it seems extremely light and fluffy and primarily colored and that is part of how i am able to do the horrible things i do um so i'm very excited about that and september is going to be chimes at midnight which is the seventh toby day book uh, and then october is parasite which is the first of the parasitic tapeworm books it's also my first hardcover I'm very excited. Yay. I really hope that they can get me like in airports and stuff so that I can take horrible selfies of my books when I'm traveling. Um, I actually went out and got a tapeworm as research for this book, which uh, I had just been invited. <laughs> I'm not kidding. His name's Timmy. Um, How does I procure a tapeworm? I went to the Minnesota Museum of Parasitology and got him in pill form so that I could study his effects on the human body. Um, this was I, just you after. You can't see my face right now. <laughs> oh, I've seen that face from many, many people. Um, this was just after I had changed editors at Orbit because Dong Wan had left. So my poor, poor new editor 
Like, I think literally our second conversation was, how are you doing? Oh, my tampon is doing great. (laughs) He was just, he was not, he was like Mark. He was unprepared. (laughs) Um, He had no, no idea how to react to that at all. I I would love to imagine that, that editor handoff. You're going to love her. She's about to write about tapeworms. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what Dong Wan did because he, he acquired the parasite books before he left orbit. And I'm like, do you just not like your replacement? Like, Let's go. Okay, aren't aren't you lucky? The experience you're about to have, new gentleman, um, and uh, that the first of those comes out in October. They're not as disgusting as you might think. So wait till someone you know who knows your reading barriers has read it, because you might find that you'll like it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people that don't like zombies like feed. You might also just be like, bitch, please tapeworms, <laughs> and that is. Too. No one should ever make you feel guilty for not reading something, even by an author that you like. Um, even the author. I, I have told a couple people that they have to buy it, even if they won't read it, because they were like my sister. Um, like, <laughs> buy it and give it to someone who can't afford it, or feed it to a tiger. You know, do something, but you have to buy a copy. The bonds of family compel you. Right. Um, and I'm currently writing the next books in almost all of those series. I'm, I'm working on the 8th October Day book right now. Uh, I've just turned in the third encrypted book, uh, which is super fun. I liked it a lot. Alex's girlfriend is from Australia. Um, she does not swear as much as most of the Australians I know, but she's got an incredibly laid back attitude about most things that want to kill her. And I appreciate that. Um, and, uh, and I'm working on the sequel to Parasite, which is Symbiogenesis, um, and lots of short fiction. My short fiction dance card is is very, very full right now, uh, which I find exciting as all hell uh, because I enjoy writing short fiction. But other people find it a little terrifying when I show them my to-do lists, so I try not to show them off too much. Yeah, your, your to-do lists that you occasionally post on LiveJournal are... Uh, yeah. No, do you, do you write full-time or do you have a day job? I have a day job. How do you... How? 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 <laughs> No social life. Um, it, and it, very it, little sleep, I imagine. Very little sleep. It is, it is an unfortunate truth of life in the modern world. You know, the cost of medical care has gone up all out of proportion with what anyone gets paid. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time, there was a time, which honestly was not that long ago, where you could get paid $5,000 a book, $10,000 a book, and while you wouldn't be a Rockefeller, you would be able to afford silly little things like a trip to the doctor if you got sick. Um, unfortunately, that ship has sailed, and I have to maintain a day job to maintain medical insurance, mm-hmm. uh, because without it, I would be in, in serious, serious trouble. I have actually looked at the, the prospect of immigrating to Canada. Yeah, because I was about to say, this is the point at which Kaylee and I just start feeling sorry for the Americans. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> well you should. We well, would I, love I, to I help to sure. have you, Sean, and we honestly would. I, I actually looked at the rules, and I'm like, I make enough money from my writing, which I would not be taking away from Canadians, that I've got a pretty good shot at immigration. Um, but unfortunately, uh, my mother lives with me, and she does not have a good shot at immigration. Um, so I would have to desert her to the American system. Uh, if I if I moved, um, so yeah. Right now, I, I have a day job. I post those to do lists in part so my friends don't get as mad at me <laughs> because they can see that I'm genuinely working and I'm not just blowing them off. I'm blowing everyone off. Mm-hmm. 
I I dearly hope you know the feed feed has been optioned for for film. I'm getting my first hardcover out. Uh, I, I say, please buy my books so I can feed my cats a lot. And, and some people get annoyed. Some people are like, that's gross commercialism. And I'm like, that's that. No, that's paying the power bill. Um, and I dearly hope that I'll be able to quit my day job before I give myself a heart attack. Uh, I can't guarantee it, but I at least get a nap then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uncomfortable laughter. Yeah. <laughs> So, dear listeners, let's all buy Shannon's books. Yes. Because we want to feed her adorable Maine Coons and for her not to have a heart attack. Yes. (laughs) They're adorable. They're enormous. They're daunting. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, This has been enormous fun. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We had good rage. It was productive. (laughs) I think this is our longest one yet. All right, so we will link all the things we just talked about in the show notes. You can reach us at Twitter at at Anglofees, or you can email us. Still, no one has emailed us. Come on, people! Surely you have things to say at Anglofees at gmail dot com. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And, and is- Kaylee's here in spirit. Kay- <laughs> Ghost Kaylee and Shannon was here. Shannon was here. She was awesome. All right. So have a good night, everybody. Go read things. Buy stuff. Bye. And cut. Yay! Oh, thanks so much. This was great. Good. I'm glad. Thank you for having me. Oh, all right. This so, is very timely as my husband came in just as we started wrapping up and I could tell because the cats woke up. Hello, Alina's husband. <laughs> he's eating very quietly, which I appreciate. Aww, you can see, but I'm waving. <laughs> like you, I have two big cats, mine are ragdolls, so I sympathize with the necessity of feeding them. Yes, ragdolls are great cats. My main coons are, are great, but they're also incredibly picky. Like, I have to feed them Royal Canaan picky bitch or they won't eat. <laughs> um, and, and they will tell me that they have not. I'm like, you have food in your dish. No, it's not good enough. <laughs> it's the wrong food. So, but all is well. Y'all have a great evening wherever it is you are. And I'm going to go eat a thing because it's lunchtime now. Yeah, not a tapeworm. We hope don't don't confuse those. Oh, I, I will not eat a tapeworm, and and that that was not an accident. It was a reasoned research decision, <laughs> and it horrified my editor, which really was icing on the cake. But it's a great story, which is often all that really matters. That yeah. is- so good night, y'all. Good night. Bye. 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 You have been listening to Anglophies, a made-of-fail production.